a seat. So I want to start with a question uh, this morning. Have you ever wondered what it looked like going to church in the first century? Um, maybe not, but I think about these things all the time, right? And it certainly did not look like this. Right? They, were, they didn't have video screens, there were not microphones, uh, there was no parking lot, there was no kids check-in desk or kids ministries, uh, they didn't have sanctuaries, they didn't have sound systems, they didn't even have church buildings like we have today. When people went to church in the first century, it was very, very different. In fact, they didn't even talk about going to church the way we talk about going to church. Um, In fact, the word church, as it's used in the New Testament, didn't even refer to a religious building or to a worship service. Um, And so I want to tell you a little bit about this word. In fact, I want to teach you a Greek word this morning. It's the word ekklesia. Um, It's the word that we translate as church uh, in the New Testament. But it was not even a religious word to begin with. Ekklesia was a general word in Greek that just meant an assembly of people who are called or gathered together for a purpose. So the ancient city of Athens had an ecclesia of its citizens. Uh, the citizens would regularly gather together either weekly or bi-weekly to make decisions about important civic laws and city officials and city matters that came up. So it was this group of people, right? These citizens who had a purpose, take care of the welfare of their city, and they had regular meetings where they met to fulfill and live out that purpose. So they were an ecclesia. okay? Now this is the word that Jesus uses when he first begins to talk about how his followers will become a group of people who will live out a specific purpose. They too, like the citizens of Athens, will be an ecclesia. And then the rest of the New Testament just continues to use this word to refer to this group of people. Now, sometimes the word is used very broadly. Um, In the book of Acts, it talks about the ecclesia in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So clearly it's talking about a whole bunch of people in these big areas. Um, But then there's other times, like when Paul, he writes a letter one time to the specific ecclesia that meets in the home of a guy named Philemon, right? So this is a small group of people that meets in a home. But in the first century, here's what you have to understand, whether it's referring to this broad group or a very specific group, this idea of church was never about a building like this. And it wasn't even really about an event that you attend on Sunday morning. It was about a group of people who are called together to live out a purpose. Now, we know the early church, this early group of people, did actually meet quite regularly together in gatherings. And in fact, one of the earliest descriptions we have of this, I want to read it for you this morning. This comes from the book of Acts. And if you've been in church for a while, you might recognize some of this. But here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now notice, um, this wasn't 
one of those things where it's like, hey, every once in a while, let's hang out together, right? It wasn't even once a week or twice a week or three times a week. It says they met every single day. And before you begin to think what I would think when I read this, like, well, they didn't have anything else to do back then in their lives, so that's why they were hanging out together. Well, actually, that's not true at all. They had way less discretionary time than we have in our lives today. They were way more busy meeting the actual tangible physical needs in their lives than we ever have been, and yet they gathered together every single day. It was that important to be together. Now, also in this description, we see that sometimes they met together in sort of larger, more structured format. It said they met together every day in the temple courts. All of Jesus' early followers came from a Jewish background. So this would have been normal and familiar to them. They were used to going to the temple there in Jerusalem or to going to synagogues in other cities where there were more structured gatherings and someone might teach and they would do more structured kind of things. But it says they also met in smaller and more informal ways. They, they just met in people's homes where it was probably just a handful of people and they were sharing meals together. Now, I want to point out uh, three really important words in this description because I think it captures what these meetings and what this group of people were really about. And they're the three words, fellowship, joy, and sincerity. So let's start with the word fellowship. Uh, fellowship here is, is not just this idea that they were hanging out together. It's not that they were just mingling. It's not that they were having a potluck supper down in the fellowship hall, right? Some of us know what that's like. All of those things are good, but the word that's translated fellowship here more literally means they were sharing of themselves with one another. They were bringing themselves and participating with their whole selves. They were giving of themselves to each other. They weren't just spectators, but they were actually participating in something that was larger than each one of them. Some of you might know, also were told about this group that they would share their money and they would share their possessions together as well. Now at the very end, it says uh, that they met together with glad and sincere hearts. And literally it reads, they had a heart of gladness or joy. We'll come back to that word in a second. And a heart of sincerity. Uh, sincerity means that they brought their whole selves. They brought their true and authentic selves. That when they gathered together, they didn't put on masks. <laughs> that they didn't have to pretend to be something they were not. They didn't have an image or a reputation to uphold or maintain. They just brought their true, unfiltered, authentic selves to each other. And then it says they also had this heart of gladness or deep joy or deep delight. And I think the idea of deep joy or deep delight captures the idea of this word much better. Um, gladness, we don't use that very much in, in English, and that sounds sort of soft, but it's actually a much richer word. It, it connotes this deep sense of joy. In fact, there's another time it's used in the New Testament. There's a man named Zechariah, and Zechariah is told that he's about to have a son, and the same word is used, that this new baby in his family will be a source of deep joy and delight. That there's something about this, this new child and this expanding family that, that this child is going to fill your heart and fill your life like nothing else can. 
Now, the parents in the room know that having kids is also a lot of work, and it's also very exhausting, and it can be frustrating at times, but it is ultimately a source of deep joy. And that's how the ecclesia, that's how the church is described in Acts. And when you're a part of this community, when you bring yourself, when you participate, when you show up, it will be a source of deep joy. Yes, it'll be tiring at times. Yes, it'll be frustrating at times, just like being a parent is, but it will be a source of deep joy. Now, neuroscientists today are discovering and beginning to articulate some of these same exact ideas. What we're learning is that there are parts of our brains that are hardwired for this feeling or this experience of what we now call deep joy. Not uh, short-term sensory pleasure, but deep joy. And that when we experience this deep joy, it leads to healing and it leads to wholeness and it leads to a sense of self-identity. It leads to uh, mental and emotional and physical development and mental and emotional and physical health. In fact, there are many neuroscientists that are now saying that this kind of joy is essential to what it means to be a human. It is like the fuel that we need to live. And get this. The key to this deep joy, and again, this is what neuroscientists are saying, tons of studies over the last 20 or 30 years, the key to deep joy is not good hobbies. It's not spending time outdoors. It's not accomplishments. It's not success at work. As good as all of those things are. No, the key to this deep joy is authentic, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, relationships that we know now that that's essential for babies to form a sense of identity and what it means to be human it's essential for adolescence and that we still need that as adults we need face-to-face relationships we need uh, people where we can be ourselves in front of them. We can be authentic. We can be honest. We can be genuine. We can bring our whole selves and we can look into other people's eyes and they can look back into our eyes. And basically what they can say to us is, I'm glad you're here. You're significant. You're accepted. You are loved. You are an important part of this community. And when you have those kind of relationships in your life, you can really face anything. Now, if you want to learn all about this, um, just Google attachment theory, and you can learn a bunch about it. Or Google regulation of the right brain. Or look up Dr. Alan Shore at UCLA, who has written extensively about this. Or Dr. Jim Wilder, a clinical psychologist out of Boulder. You can look at all of those things, or you can just read the descriptions of the ecclesia, the early church. A group of people who gathered together regularly, who gave themselves to each other, and who experienced deep joy together. That's what it means to go to church, or more accurately, to simply be the church in the first century. Now, just to be clear, uh, church wasn't always perfect. Human relationships never are. There were arguments. There were relational conflicts. 
They had to learn forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. Those things are essential to human relationships as well. And what Acts is really describing, I think for all of us, is the word that we would now use today, the word community. Um, Community can be overdone. It can be a word that's overused. And yet, it's still a really powerful idea and a powerful word. And it's something that we all long for. Even if you're introverted, you long for community. Even if you have a family, even if you've been burned by community, burned by relationships, or burned by the church in the past, we still long for it and we still need it, maybe today, more than ever before. Uh, A few months ago, the U.S. Surgeon General released a really important report, as you might know, the Surgeon General is the nation's top medical professional, the most well-respected doctor when it comes to our physical and our public health. And if you're not in the medical profession, then you're maybe not used to hearing, or you don't hear much from the Surgeon General very often, unless there's a medical crisis, right? Unless there's something that is so threatening to the public's health that it's reached epidemic proportions, like uh, smoking cigarettes in the 1960s or the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Well, just three months ago, this past May, the Surgeon General released a new report about a new crisis that we are now facing, a new epidemic that is the greatest threat to our physical health. The report is called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And I want to encourage you to go online and to download the PDF and to read it. The data is overwhelming And not so surprising. We are more disconnected, alienated, isolated, and lonely than we ever have been. We can communicate with other people in ways better than we could before. We can watch and consume content that other people have made in ways that we've never been able to before. But we have lost the relationships and the community and the joy that we are hardwired for. And it's killing us. It's not just killing our souls. It is physically killing us. It's one of the most clear factors in the rise of so many health problems that we face today. In fact, I want to just show you one chart. Just one chart. Our loneliness and isolation is more detrimental to our health now than air pollution, obesity, physical inactivity, right, not exercising at all, drinking six alcoholic drinks a day, or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The lack of authentic community that most of us experience outside of our families and some of us inside of our families is the equivalent of smoking almost a pack of cigarettes a day. That's what it's doing to us. And so today... I just thought it would be good to pause and reflect on this and remind ourselves of what true community looks like in this example of the ecclesia in the first century and how desperately we still need it. It's what the church was designed to be and we need it to in our lives today. I also thought it would be good to ask, how are we doing with community here at New Denver Church. 
And uh, that's always a risky question to ask out loud as a pastor, uh, because from time to time I talk to people who tell me that they have not experienced community um, here. And whenever I hear that, that always makes me sad. Uh, Sometimes it's clear that they didn't really try very hard to experience community. Sometimes it's really clear that they tried really hard and they just never felt it or experienced it. Sometimes it's really clear that we're just not the right community for everybody and, and there's another community of faith out there that would be a better fit for them. Sometimes it's a combination of all of those things and sometimes I have no idea why some don't experience community. And so as a leader, I certainly have those days where I feel like we could be doing better and I feel like I could be leading us better as a community. Uh, but the truth is, there is a lot to celebrate. <laughs> and uh, it's easy to dwell on the bad, but there is a whole lot of good. There are a lot of people that are finding, and there's a lot of good community happening. I met with someone recently who told me that all of their most important and significant friendships and relationships in their life are other people at New Denver Church. Or like when I sometimes talk to people who move away and they're right back after six months or a year or two years of moving away and they say, only when I left and moved away did I realize how significant the New Denver community was in my life. Or like when I uh, paid somebody on Venmo the other day and you know how when you open Venmo you can see all the transactions of people in your contact list? And uh, I noticed that these um, two other couples... uh, had one couple had sent the other couple money for going out to a movie and for babysitting, and I promise I was not stalking them. It was just mom the transaction history, right? And there were two couples who used to go to New Denver but don't go here anymore. And I was actually really encouraged. I was like, they're doing community. They formed these relationships in this community through New Denver Church and while they were here, and they've now left, but they're still hanging out and they still have this significant community in, your, in their life. That's significant. Or or it's the person who wrote this to me last year. They wrote this. It brings tears of joy to say that the steady love, acceptance, and grace from everyone at NDC is part of what has kept me encouraged and sustained during this past year. I've never felt such compassion from a church to just let life be life. That's community. Or like in our own lives, my own life, a couple of weeks ago, um, Janice, my wife, her dad passed away. And uh, he had been sick for a while. It was not unexpected. And a whole bunch of people found out and started bringing meals to us for a whole week. And we didn't really need the food. Like I wasn't in the hospital. It wasn't a crisis, right? We didn't have a new baby. We could still cook food. But it was a reminder that people care for us and that we're loved and there's people praying for us and they know what's going on in our life. That's community. And most of it happens in very informal, unstructured, organic, unprogrammed ways. And I think that's how it should be. I'm guessing that's how it was in the first century Having said that, this value of community does drive us to be intentional in a few really important ways. Uh, For starters, community is why our seating is arranged 
the way it is here in the sanctuary. Um, we made this change about a year and a half ago. So if you're new, uh, a year and a half ago, up until that time, we just had normal rows like every other auditorium and everyone was sort of facing the stage up front. And um, it struck us that this is how concert halls are arranged or this is how lecture halls or this is how movie theaters are. And whenever you go to one of those places, you're going to watch something or to see something or to consume something, but you're not really participating in something. And we wanted the way that we gather on Sunday mornings to reflect our desire to underscore this value of community. And so we just moved all of the chairs to be the way they are. And it's a little bit awkward in a rectangular room. It would be way better if this was a circular room, right? And we had to put some screens up on the side. And whenever you're speaking, you kind of have to spin around the whole time. And whenever we have a group of people that has to present something, it would be so much easier if we just did it on stage. And where does everyone stand in the middle? And and, and whenever you come in and, and you sit down, you're like, this is kind of weird. I'm staring at other people on the side of the room, right? But it also reminds us that we're here together, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and that we're all real people, and we have real lives with real challenges and real desires. And we come here not to watch something or to consume something, but to participate in something bigger than ourselves. So that's why the chairs are the way they are. Um, Community is also one of the primary reasons we do events like uh, the contemplative retreat, the wilderness retreat, um, the marriage retreat. Emily is on that this weekend with a few other couples and our yearly men's and women's retreats. Um, We know that uh, for you to attend one of those retreats, it costs some money. It costs time investment on your part. It costs time investment on our part. Emily spent a ton of time preparing for this marriage retreat this weekend where she's going to invest in four other couples and their marriages. And in some ways, this sort of goes against standard business practice. It says that people on staff should figure out how to maximize their time to serve the most people possible. But efficiency is not one of our core values. Community is. And we know that something really powerful happens when you get away, maybe to the mountains, and you spend extended, intentional time with other people. And so we'll keep doing retreats like this. We know it's not a great church growth strategy, right? If you want to reach a whole lot of people, you figure out how to put on a really good show And I guess you could say Jesus put on a really good show a couple of times and a bunch of people showed up and thousands of people were there and they were wowed. But most of the time you read through the Gospels, he's just hanging out with a few people, a few disciples here and there, helping them understand what community is going to look like. Uh, One more thing. This is why we do discipleship groups. Um, Twice a year, uh, in January and August, we start new D groups. And if you happen to be new here uh, today, these are simple groups that meet for either uh, one semester, um, about eight to 12 weeks, or two semesters, maybe six to nine months. And uh, we have a whole bunch of different groups. Um, Some of them are sort of like traditional Bible studies. Um, Some might discuss a specific topic. Uh, Some are about navigating a season of life. Um, But all of them are designed to be opportunities where we can not only just grow in our faith, but perhaps form or deepen some important relationships 
with a smaller group of people over a longer period of time. And I cannot guarantee that if you sign up for a D group that you will experience deep community and you'll make friends for the rest of your life, right? You may and you may not. I've been in some small groups that were really impactful in my life and I've been in other small groups that were just sort of so-so. But I can guarantee you this. If you only attend New Denver Church on Sunday mornings, you definitely won't experience community here. Certainly not the kind of community we all long for We were all made for, and we all need. And so, let me just wrap up today by encouraging you to do a few things. I want to encourage you to consider signing up for a D group. I'll share some more specific information. We'll talk about that at the very end of the service um, in a moment. But I want want you to consider simply signing up to to participate in one of our D groups this fall. Um, Guys, I want to challenge you to sign up for our men's retreat. We're doing a men's retreat in October, October 20th. Through 22nd, we're going to head up to the mountains, and you have the chance to basically do community with 30 to 40 other guys over, the, over uh, a weekend. Uh, the cost of doing one of these retreats is about $300 per person, and we cover half of that as a church because we just want to make it simple and easy, and we don't want anyone to have any kind of barrier for coming and participating and being a part of something like that. So consider, guys, signing up for that. Ladies, uh, the women's retreat is happening April 26th through 28th, so you can put that on your calendar now. And then finally, when you show up on Sunday, just by showing up, Just by looking into other people's eyes, you are saying, I'm glad you're here, and I know you're glad I'm here, and we are part of something bigger. Let me pray for us. God, it is clear, um, we all know in our hearts that we were made uh, for genuine and authentic relationships. And even though they aren't easy, even though it's um, something in us pushes against this, I pray that you would give us the courage to seek out those relationships. For those of us who are experiencing loneliness, help us to be honest about that and then do something about it. We know that you care deeply for us. We know that you've placed others in our lives so that you can show your care and love through them for us. Help us to see that. We pray this in your name. Amen.